Father, we do come to You this morning asking that Your Holy Spirit would be at work in us to sanctify us by Your Word, that as You sanctify us, Lord, that You would guard our hearts, that You would lead us away from temptation, You would deliver us from the evil one and all of His power, Lord. For we trust You, for Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. This morning, as we continue our study in, in the Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 62. So please turn there with me and follow along. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Salah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will, rem- you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's Word. Would you please have a seat? Well, I think that we've already seen as we've been looking at the Psalms that they are quite an interesting genre. They're, they're really unlike anything else that we might read in Scriptures. Uh, we don't necessarily find prophecy there. We don't necessarily find historical context there. They're not necessarily um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, teaching, as, as we read about, as we read the, many of the New Testament letters, didactic, that's the word I was thinking of, sorry. But they're this, this unique genre, and if we really want to understand the Psalms, if we want to digest the Psalms, you have to, you have to meditate on them. And some are, some are straightforward, you know, some are made clear uh, because they have some historical context that is given, you know, often at the preface to the Psalms themselves. And that, those can help us greatly in understanding what they're talking about. So, for example, we read uh, some of the penitential Psalms of David. And in the beginning of this preface, it'll tell us this, you know, this is why David wrote this psalm, because he's, he's wrestling with the forgiveness he needs for, you know, his time with Bathsheba and Uriah. Or we might read about all the, the historical contexts that talk about one of the many times David found himself in big trouble, it's chasing, being chased by one enemy or another. And, and is finding themselves in a, a dire situation. And those can help give us 
some clues to understanding those psalms. And when you read a psalm that has the historical context, or we can figure out the historical context of the psalm, we can read those pretty quickly, and we can come away with a meaning. And I, I think we have to be careful, though, because because we can do that with some psalms, I think we assume that that's the nature of psalms, and we can do that with any psalm. But you get to a psalm like this one, and it doesn't give us any historical context to anchor it in terms of its meaning. It seems a bit more on the generic side. And those, I think, we have to ask, well, why does the psalmist write these psalms that you could fit in all kinds of situations? They're just kind of generic truths. Are they just truths that we should just gloss over? I mean, how do we get the most out of a psalm like this? And this is where I think meditation is so important. Because the psalms, again, the idea is that they're helping to shape your life. That's what they're meant to do. And not by revealing some new teaching to you, but helping shape the way perhaps that you, you, you feel as you consider the various teachings that we find there. For there's truths there. There's, there's, there's great doctrinal truths that we're going to read about, even in this psalm, for example. But the, it's not necessarily that doctrinal truth that has the power by itself. It's the way we are moved to, to see this doctrinal truth in the psalm that helps us. Because let's think about the way that you live your life. You live your life according to the old adage the world is very familiar with, you know, you follow your heart. And I know we've talked about that. Oh, we don't want to follow our heart. The heart is wicked above all things. But the truth is, you don't have to tell someone to follow their heart because that's what we're always doing. We're always following our heart. The heart being that control center of your life, of the way you operate. So it's, it, we're always pursuing the way the heart tells us to go. And it doesn't mean that logic and reason don't play a part of that. It's not that the mind is absent. It's that the heart is this taking all of it into account. I mean, think about that. Think about the time when you're about to make a big decision and you put your, together your pro and con list. And you think, well, this side seems to have all the pros and very little of the cons. It's the logical choice. And yet, in the end, you don't choose that choice. Why? Because you're following your heart. Some might say you're following your gut. But it's the same kind of thing. The heart is steering us. And the Psalms have this unique language where they take these great doctrinal truths that we can rationalize and think about from, with our minds, and they take those truths and they begin to shape your heart. They're shaping your heart. So somehow those doctrinal truths are penetrating beyond just the, the logic and the reason into the control center of your very life. But they only happen when you take the time to really meditate on them, to press on them a little bit, to push against them, and to, to explore what is it they're actually wanting me to, to feel, perhaps, to digest, and how. So that's what I wanted to do with this particular psalm this morning, is to see the significance of meditating on the truths that we find them, to let these speak to your heart. Another way of thinking about the psalms is, is they're, they're like the Impressionist painting. You know, an, impression, an Impressionist painter takes a real scene, and when you watch it, if you look at an Impressionist painting, you can tell the scene that he was painting. It, it's real enough that you can recognize him, but it's not real enough in that you're, you're not caught up in the scene itself, but the way in which he painted the scene. 
What was he, what was, how was this particular scene impacting the artist that paints it? So again, the psalm's like that. We're seeing how do these truths impacting the psalmist who's writing them so that we can step into his place and feel the same way and get the same out of it. And this particular psalm, the great doctrinal truth, of course, is God as a refuge, as God as a refuge. And one of the ways he's pushing that point home is by emphasizing it, God alone, God alone. This is what you see over and over, for God alone is my refuge, for God alone my soul waits, for God alone. So there's this challenge to the reality that when, yes, we know doctrinally we're supposed to trust in the Lord, but what does that mean exactly? Why is that? What is the quality of our, of our trust? Is it really in God alone, or do we spread it out in a variety of things? So as we, as we press that in, I want to look at kind of the quality of your trust in God alone. You know, does it waver? Is it pure? Does it ebb and flow? How do we, how do we affect the quality of that trust, that confidence in the Lord? And so the qualities, as we see about this, there's, there's a, several, there's three particular things I want to talk about that we can do as we meditate. The first one is we meditate in silence. And he talks about silence in verse 1, and he repeats it again in verse 5, you know, for God alone my soul waits in silence. There's this quality about silence. Something about calming himself so that he can stop and consider the fact that God alone is a refuge. So I sit in silence, perhaps to meditate on it. Now, there's a variety of reasons the psalmist could be saying, I sit in silence, and I want to explore some of those, because as you meditate, I think more than one particularly apply. So one, it helps us to meditate, and that could be the first quality. But two, silence could be the idea that I have already prayed to the Lord. I've lifted up my concern. He's not hearing me because I'm, I'm multiplying my words. I've already asked for help. I've already trusting in Him. All I need now do is just wait on the Lord in silence. There's a reflection of a, of a confidence there because I'm able to be silent. There's also, I think, the, the, the idea that He can be silent in the face of His enemies when are taunting Him and threatening Him. And that's brought out in the little bit what we see of, of some measure of context historically, um, not with a particular situation, but a kind of situation in verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. I mean, we could fit this to so many different situations that David himself faced, where there's people threatening him like he is this tottering wall. He's, he's, he looks very precarious in his situation. Perhaps he feels very precarious in his situation. Like it wouldn't take much to knock him off of his position. And yet in such a, in such a time, he's able to be silent. He's able to be silent with some measure of confidence. And you think about the times when you feel threatened. I mean, there's so many things going on in our world today that could make you feel threatened. I mean, there's so much increasing measure of division and hostility. There's, there's, you know, there's pandemics, there's governments, there's, dis, you know, there's judgments, there's violence. I mean, it's just all escalating, it seems, and it could make you feel a bit uneasy. I mean, these are threats, and think about how we often deal with them. I know how I often deal with them. Often I find myself venting about them. 
Now, venting can, have, can be positive or negative. You can vent as a way of trying to process exactly what it is you're understanding. But I think oftentimes we simply vent because this is fear escaping. It's our way of, of somehow pressing out the fear that we feel. And why do we feel a fear? Because we lack this measure of confidence in the Lord. So this is an evaluative tool. Am I able to be silent in the face when I feel threats? Like the psalmist is saying, do I have a quiet confidence that God is capable of being a real refuge in the storms that face me in the futures of life? And, it, and this is not just a, an ethereal thing. This is not just in the head. I know oftentimes we think about the quality of our faith as just, it's just a head thing. You know, is God just a refuge for the mind and how I can rest my thoughts? But there's so much more than that. These are very physical things that the psalmist is talking about. These, these enemies can, can knock me off of my position. They can affect me economically. They can affect me from my status in the, the social world. They can affect me in very real practical ways. And God, I'm trusting, can be a refuge if I fall economically, if I fall socially, if I fall in my career, if I fall in this avenue, God still is a refuge that can hold me up, and I have a quiet confidence of that. You know, I think about the description of Jesus when He went before His greatest trial and the threats that were on His life, and it says uh, that Isaiah describes Him like a sheep before His shears is silent. So was Jesus before His accusers. There's this quiet confidence that, yes, God is a refuge for no matter what might affect me in life. But you don't really get that. You don't feel that unless you take the time to meditate on it, to press it down, to consider it, to contemplate it. Now, there's more to it. The second thing I think we do when we meditate is we, we consider the perspective that the psalm is wanting us to take. He's talking about refuges in the world. That's kind of the context. So, how do we gain perspective on the different refuges that people might take in this world? What is the psalmist trying to help us to see? Uh, you know, I remember, I can't even remember how long ago it was, 10 years ago or so, we, had, uh, we were working through our, our fanning the flame, and one of the teachers that came to speak to us was speaking about the culture. It's like this current, like a river, and we are caught in it. Everybody is born, and we are in this current that's carrying us along. And along the banks of this current, you can imagine there's all these things that it's offering up to you as, as solutions for life, as refuges, places you can stop that you are meant to stop. This is going to give you success. This is going to give you safety. This is going to give you security. This is going to give you an identity. You know, all of these things are along the banks that this current is carrying us along that we see all the time. But as you meditate, it allows you to resist the flow of that current and see and evaluate, well, what are those refuges? Are they sturdy? Are they strong? Are they able to hold me? And it is fascinating to go through this uh, psalm, and he helps us to evaluate that. He's been talking about God as a refuge, so when there are enemies that are threatening to push me over, to knock me off of my place, I can trust God to be a refuge that they won't succeed. But it's not just that. As he goes on in verses 9 and 10, he's talking more about those particular people. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. 
in the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches and sin increase, set not your heart on them. So there is this sense in which these ones who are threatening me, who seem to have a strong position enough to knock me off of mine, are themselves standing on things that are but a breath. They are but a breath. So as I'm being carried along in the current of our culture, being presented with all of these things that are meant to be, our culture says, are, are worth standing upon, whether it's a certain level in your bank account, whether it's a certain position that you might hold in your job, or it's a certain status you might have among your friends. Whatever it might be, the world is saying, or this perspective, this meditation is able to give you a perspective to see that these are but a breath. Don't divide your trust in God and this thing, God and that thing. God alone has got to be the refuge in which, my, in which I'm hoping, in which I'm trusting, in which I'm standing. So there's this, there's, as we meditate on it, there is this exposure of all the various false ways that we would find ourselves seeking refuge from the threats of the world. And if you don't meditate, you're not able to see that. You don't take the time in a psalm like this to really grapple with that idea. And the third aspect, the third aspect of as we meditate on it is that meditation involves a dialogue with the Lord. And there's evidence that the psalmist has a dialogue actually in a variety of settings. If you look at to whom he's addressing various aspects of the psalm, you'll find in the first part it seems like he's talking to the corporate body, the congregation that he might meet. I mean, these are meant to be used in a, in a public setting. So he's, there, he's, it's kind of instructional. You know, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And he goes on to explain that. In verse 8, he's talking about pour out your soul before the Lord. So there's this, as a corporate body, we are engaging with the Lord. And then in verse 5, he shifts it. It's a very subtle shift. You know, in verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. In verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He's now talking to his own soul. So there's this dialogue going on in the context of this corporate worship. There's this dialogue going on with the Lord, and there's this dialogue going on in his own soul. So there's, there's all these different components that we see going on in the idea of meditation. Now, and he's ending the psalm in an interesting way, too. He says, for once, how does he put it? Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Now, that's a, that's a, a device that poetry we often find in different types of poetry, once this and twice this. It's a way of drawing emphasis to what he's talking about. But it's also, it's also implying there is some measure of frequency to it. Once God has said, twice I have heard, there's this, there's this give and take. I'm speaking and I'm listening to the Lord. And it's a frequent occurrence. There's a pattern being established. And as you think about meditation, I know we tend to think meditation is something that we do on our own, and it can be something you do on your own. But really, when we come into a corporate setting like this in worship, there is a sense when we as a body are helping to press these truths down. There is a, there's a corporate meditative aspect to our worship. And as you may depart from today and you engage in discussions with your neighbor about a psalm like this, you are able to 
to give each other different aspects of perspective of how does this, how did this impress itself upon your heart? And maybe the impression it gave you is different than the impression it gave me. And as we meditate in a corporate sense, we're both, we're both benefiting from both of those impressions. So your time in corporate worship is one of those times in which we are dialoguing with the Lord. I mean, we see it perhaps in this particular setting more so than other places. You know, when, we, when we enter the liturgy, that's a dialogue with the Lord. The Lord calls and you respond. You're dialoguing with the Lord. When we go to the Lord in a time of prayer, we are speaking to the Lord. This is our voice going to Him. When we listen to the Word being preached, this is God speaking to us, you see. And when we come to the table, there's the perspective that we are joined together in communion. So there's this relational, corporate, communal dialogue going on in the context of this kind of meditation. So what are we hearing as we once, twice hear and listen to the Lord speaking? And He says these, these truths at the very end, these are the key. He says there's two things that He's particularly processing. One, that power belongs to God. And two, that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. Now, if you think about those two things, those are the two things that we most need to see God as a refuge. How could we ever trust God to be a refuge if we didn't recognize Him to be all-powerful? The most powerful thing there is, one there is. There's nothing stronger upon which you can build your life. That's what He's saying, that all power, that power belongs to the Lord. Now, you can meditate on all of Scripture to see this. Starting in Genesis 1, what do we see? God is the Creator. He spoke, and all of creation came into being. You know, He hovered over the waters. There's this aspect that God is shaping the very environment in which we live, shaping the universe with His hands, with His breath, with His mind, with His Spirit. The power belongs to God, the power of creation. But then you see God on the pages of, of, uh, of the Bible acting out in ways that He lets the people see. So as He puts His power on display when He rescues the, the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt, His power is for them. He's acting for them, and He's able to, be, to demonstrate His power over the greatest nations of the earth, the greatest powers that exist on the earth. He is showing Himself in every aspect to be greater and more powerful. You know, we read about Him riding on the clouds. He comes in judgment. We read about Him bringing back the exiles from their time in Babylon, in Assyria. There's this, which is in essence a type and a shadow of calling them back from the dead. He has the power to give life to the dead. So we, we see the power of God on display. Why is it that I can put my confidence in God? because it all power belongs to God. All power belongs to God. And then the second aspect of that, because to the Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Now, steadfast love is a, is a phrase that we, we read often in the Bible, this, this idea of mercy, this idea of chesed is the, is the Hebrew word. It's, it's such, a, such a, a rich word. You know, this is a love that, that pursues you, 
This is a love that doesn't give up. That's the idea of steadfast. It remains steady no matter what is happening in the world, no matter where you are in the world, no matter whether you're ebbing and flowing, this love is steady, and it will not relent after you. It is, by the word, steadfast. Now, the way the psalm ends is, is interesting, and I don't, want it, I don't want it to confuse you. I don't want it to throw you off, because as he ends it, for you will render to a man according to his work. And all of a sudden, it seems like, oh my gosh, we've entered into this conditionality. Now I'm in trouble. Uh, but I don't think that's what the psalmist is trying to do. I mean, he's, all the emphasis that's been about is about God. God is refuge. God is a strength. All power belongs to Him. His love is steadfast. It will pursue you to the ends of the earth. There is nothing that can separate you from His love. That's the idea of the steadfastness. So why now does He throw this in? I think now we're beginning to see what does faith look like? What does quiet confidence in the Lord look like? Because it works itself out in the way that you live. You know, in the book of John, we were talking about this Friday night, and Lou brought up a great point, you know, talking about what, is what does it look like to love the Lord? If you love me, you will obey me and keep my commandments. In other words, how do we know a, a, a tree but by its fruit? How do you know if you have real quiet confidence in the Lord as your refuge? Well, your works reflect that. So how is it the psalmist can saying that he will, uh, uh, what does it say again? For you will render a man according to his work. He will give a man according to his faith. It is by acting that you will find God to be a solid refuge. I mean, think of it like this. If God were a refuge and He were physically located in a particular place, and your confidence was in God as a refuge, and the, and the refuge is right there, and I chose to live my life and stand here, and you would ask me, do I believe God's a refuge? Oh, yeah, I believe it, but I'm standing here and I'm not standing there. That's, that's not a real faith. That's, a, that's not a faith that, ref, that reflects itself the way the psalmist is, is referencing you know, one of the good examples, I think I've used this before, but when you think about Jesus' words when He's talking to His disciples, He's talking to the people of Israel at the, in His final week, and He's telling them what's going to happen with the temple that they're so enamored with. This temple is going to be struck down. It's going to be destroyed. You know, it, not one stone is going to be left on another. And He tells them about, you know, when you see these signs, then you'll know the time is near when that's going to happen. He says, when you see that, Flee to the mountains, flee to the hills. Now, those who would survive the onslaught of when the Roman armies came and literally destroyed the temple and, and destroyed Jerusalem, those who survived were not those who went and hid behind the walls of Jerusalem, because that would have been the logical place to go. When an enemy marches and there's a great fortress, you go behind the walls of the fortress. That's why they're, that's why they're built. But Jesus is saying, don't go behind the walls of the fortress. Instead, flee to the hills. Go hide in the caves. And the people who listened, the people who obeyed, were rescued from that judgment. Now, if, they'd have, if they said, well, I believe you, Jesus, but they do nothing when they see these signs happening, 
and they stayed behind the walls, they might be able to say, yes, I believe God is refuge, but they didn't act and believe upon what He said. And so they get carried away. They get taken away. So as you meditate on the psalm, what you're saying is, here's what faith looks like. If God is my refuge, what does faith in God look like to stand on that as a refuge? Well, it has a, it, it's able to be silent in the face of threats. It's able to be silent in the face of threats. And it helps give me enough perspective to see the falseness of all the, all the refuges that the world would offer. It helps me to see through them so that I'm not tempted to divide my loyalties, to hedge my bets and say, yes, I believe in God, but I also believe in this you know, bank account, or I believe in this whatever it might be. And finally, we get this faith by taking the time to meditate, to engage in dialogue with the Lord. In the context of the corporate body, in the context of speaking to our own soul, so that these truths become real, so that these truths affect and shape the way we actually live. Now, we have to wrap this up by talking about how is God's power and steadfast love most on display? And it is, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ is the power of God to to come in the flesh. Here we have both God and both man coming together. If that's not power, I don't know what is. But not only that, but the steadfast love of God is, of course, on display because Christ went all the way to suffer through the cross, the thing that we ourselves deserve, having God Himself turn His back on Him so that He faces the hell that is destined for all those who don't trust Him. In other words, His his steadfast love has pursued those He loves all the way into hell and back, if you think of it like that. So as we take refuge in the Lord, we are taking refuge in His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we need not fear anything we might encounter in this world. Now again, none of these are new truths to you if you're a reader of Scripture. So the purpose of the psalm is to stop, to read it slowly to measure one verse against another verse, to see how it subtly shifts, to to engage in the dialogue with the Lord as you do it, to listen to how it's taking these truths and pressing them down so that they actually shape your heart. Because if you're going to follow your heart, you need to take the time to nurture it. And so we do that through meditation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you give us psalms to teach us and train us how we shape the heart that guides us, that leads us. We are thankful as we think about the promise of the New Testament and the work of Jesus Christ is so much that He can give us a new heart, a new heart that that has its eyes open to, to see through the falseness of the idols and refuges of the world so that we are not tempted to follow them and instead to to put our feet firmly on the rock that is Jesus, to listen to Him, to seek to live our lives in accord with how He teaches, for that is how we take refuge in You. Father, I pray that You would press these truths down into each one of us 
In Jesus' name, amen.